Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, today is International Overdose Awareness Day. The goal to raise awareness and reduce the stigma for those seeking help for substance abuse. And on this edition of Closer Look, I'll speak with state and local advocates and a federal official working to provide resources for those who need them. Prior to the opioid epidemic, it was a variety of substances. A lot of times it was alcohol in rural communities. The whole country went through a very serious problem with meth, which is resurfacing. And then there's always been, you know, other pockets of heroin abuse. The alcohol sales are at a record high. We're seeing the the revenue from from alcohol going up and up. So that it's no surprise that there's more and more people who are needing services and needing help or needing connection. People are isolated, and so they do things at home to give them comfort, and they're afraid. And so oftentimes that's when people turn to substance use disorder and they have challenges with mental illness. Last year alone in 2019, we were able to save 950 lives. The year before it, over 1,000. And once the numbers are added up for 2020, and as we're looking at the numbers right now, there's just even a bigger hit this year. COVID definitely had a part to play in this. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this, a one-year-old Georgia child has died due to the coronavirus. The death is now on record as the state's youngest victim of the disease. And we should note the Georgia Department of Public Health reports this was a young boy with a chronic underlying condition. Now the Cobb County Medical Examiner's Office says no further information is available until the boy's death certificate is completed. The number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. is on the rise, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. As of August 20th, the Academy reports 92 child deaths due to the coronavirus. Now that's just 0.06% of all total deaths. Here in Georgia, the Department of Public Health is reporting 5,604 Georgians of all ages have died due to the virus. 268,000. 973 confirmed cases in the state. Right now, the state also reports 24,572 folks are hospitalized, and of those, 4,489 are ICU admissions. And as always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In related news, the DeKalb County Board of Health says several COVID-19 testing sites will move to a new location in Stonecrest starting this Wednesday. The Green Forest Community Baptist Church and Salem Bible Church sites will transition to a former Sam's Club parking lot on Turner Hill Road. Officials say that expanded site will serve eastern and southern DeKalb. This is Closer Look. (music) 
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 72,000 Americans died due to drug overdoses last year. That's according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's a 5% increase from 2018. And now public health experts warn more lives could be lost, well, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Overdose Detection Mapping Program, it's a nationwide data set. And it noted a 20% increase in overdose data in the first four months of 2020 as compared to last year. And in a memo published on June 19th, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, Commissioner of Georgia's Department of Public Health, expressed concern the opioid epidemic in Georgia is worsening. And the memo also found numbers for fentanyl-involved overdose deaths in the state. Well, they increased by 17% from December 2019, through April 2020, compared to the previous five-month period. So on this day, August 31st, observed as International Overdose Awareness Day, the goal, to raise awareness and reduce the stigma of addiction. So today we'll talk about the rise of overdose deaths and the organizations around the state working to address this issue. And joining me now is Neil Campbell, the Executive Director of the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, and Beverly Raglan, Manager of the CARES Warm Line. They've been on the program before. Thank you both for returning. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Rose. This is great to be here. Absolutely. Neil, I want to start with you because listeners of the program may recall you from when you first joined Closer Look back in May. Take a listen. Once we had the stay-at-home order, it got pretty scary. And actually, I've been in recovery 30 years, and I went to my first virtual 12-step meeting. That first virtual uh, 12-step meeting, and how has it been for you and so many others? Has it helped at all? And I, and I imagine that it has, but it doesn't take the place of that in-person where you can you sit and talk with, with others yeah, that, that's true, Rose. We often say the opposite of addiction is human connection. And so we're finding new and innovative ways to connect with each other. Those of us who are in recovery, um, as for an example, we had 44 people on a virtual all recovery meeting last mm-hmm. night, which is pretty incredible. And that that's people from all over the state and all over the country. So virtual meetings are growing, um, but it does not take the place of the human connection, the face-to-face human connection for some, but for others, for people who tend to be more introverted, I think we're seeing an increase in them attending meetings. It's easy, you do it right from your home. And at the time when you were both on, both of you said, look, there's been a reported increase in demand for resources. Is that still the case, Beverly? It is certainly still the case. Um, With the pandemic, there comes certain things that were missing. Um, So our peers are finding that they're lonely, um, the meetings aren't available to them, and then there's all these things that are going on with the social uh, unrest that's going on. So, yes, we find a rise in the need for services, and we're working hard to make sure that everyone knows about the resources that are available. That memo from Dr. Toomey, I imagine that came to no surprise to either of you. And now I'll let you chime in first, uh, Neil. Yeah, it sure didn't. We were uh, we're glad to see that kind of data out there. We still have uh, recovery coaches in emergency rooms, so none of that was a surprise. They're starting to see uh, the acute uh, the you know there, there's there's an acute problem. People are showing up in emergency rooms. When I asked a, a uh, emergency room physician the reasons for that, she said there's two things: there's domestic violence and there's overdose. Mm. Beverly, no surprise to you then. 
Not at all. And um, because people are isolated and so they do things at home to give them comfort and they're afraid. And so oftentimes that's when people, uh, our, our peers turn to substance use disorder and they have challenges with mental illness. Mm. Beverly, you manage the CARES warm line. What are you hearing from folks? What are y'all hearing? And what is the greatest need or the greatest resource? Right now on, on the warm line, our peers are calling in because they're lonely. They have challenges, of course, with their substance use disorder. They're afraid. And then there's not that human connection, that one-on-one of being in person, but they find that the warm line can um, be a, a, a substitute for that. And the recovery coaches really try to be engaging and to make that absolute connection by sharing their lived experience, but more importantly, giving um, an opportunity for our peers to be listened to. So. Um, and then, of course, there's so much going on with fear, the challenges with social injustice that they're talking about, and they just need someone to listen sometimes and, and to vent or mm-hmm. just spend some quiet time together with someone. And so, Beverly, it's not just those who are currently in recovery, but maybe those who loved ones who are living with someone or know of someone or just have some concerns. Are you also hearing from those people? Absolutely. And we've had a rise in the number of our senior citizens that are calling in because, again, they were already isolated, but now it has increased. Their families can't come visit them. So they love to call the recovery coaches and just share their day. Mm. Neil, let me return to you because as an organization, have you been able to hire extra counselors or employees during this time? Yeah, it never seems like enough, Rose. Thanks for that. But it all, but we did get some emergency COVID funding that's going to run through November. And we were able to, Beverly was able to hire one additional coach to extend some hours on the warm line, as well as hire someone who was working with the, um, with the Latino community, the Hispanic community, to help us uh, increase our, our Spanish-speaking meetings and our Spanish serv- our Spanish-speaking services. So we find that. Um, you know, I always worry about the most marginalized communities when you have a, a you know, a, a, some kind of crisis like we have right now. And I, you know, we're talking about virtual meetings and those are for folks who actually have broadband or have internet or have a computer or have a phone that has enough minutes to connect with folks. And what about those who don't? So we're starting to do a lot more outreach with, um, with folks who may be in more marginalized communities, but the legislature, you know, we had a scare. We had a, a we were we were going through what we thought were like a lot of budget cuts, but we ended up uh, getting some advocacy going, and we had some state legislators really show up as our allies this year. So that was amazing. Following this conversation, the next conversation I'm going to talk about is the rural communities and the rural populations here in Georgia. Have you all seen an increase in folks needing assistance or just calling from the rural parts of the state? We have certainly had an increase in those peers calling in. And one of the things that we've added as an enhancement to the warm line is an opportunity for our peers to have a dedicated recovery coach to call them on a weekly basis and just check in. And we found that that's helpful with the rural community. And they just may sometimes talk about canning and and farming and and things such as that. But um, yes, absolutely. We've had more calls from the rural community because, um, again, services were already limited and now with the pandemic they certainly are more so well and i want to ask this question to both of you as well because of the pandemic and we know that hospitals and clinics 
are just overwhelmed. If someone it does need immediate medical care, do you are you hearing some instances where folks have not once they've been turned away, but they've had to wait or they've had a challenge and just trying to get some help because, listen, right now, this is a health crisis that we're in. So adding this, are folks having trouble getting getting into even seeing someone on a, if it's an emergency? I think emergency services are still accessible. My worry is are people, we hear from people who say, look, I, I have this problem, but I'm going to wait because I don't want to go to a doctor's office where there's sick people and I might be exposed. And so mm-hmm. I think there's a concern of what's out there, but we are seeing less people coming into the emergency room. And I think, again, I think the they're, they're more acute when they do show up. I think there's a fear. Uh, do I go to the doctor for a routine, uh, just a routine checkup? I, I think we're going to find out after this pandemic how, how just how deep some of these uh, issues have been. Well, Neil and Beverly, what can folks do? You know, we know about the, the hotline, but if someone listening right now who knows someone or the themselves right now struggling, what if I, what can you offer them right now? Yeah, especially, and we know not everybody who needs access to treatment gets it on a good day, but with the pandemic, it's even worse. But right now you have a series of peer-run recovery community organizations around the state of Georgia. There's 31 of them, and you can go to our website, gasubstanceabuse.org, and I'm sure that'll be available. And you can find one of these centers, they're, they're run by people in recovery, you can call them. They are all having virtual recovery meetings. They are, some of them are open and they're doing social distancing. Um, there's people, you can call the CARES warm line from 8.30 in the morning until 11 at night. And if there's a, Georgia actually has a crisis and access line that, that is run uh, that you can call if you're having an urgent or emergent or emergency uh, issue with behavioral health. There's clinicians on 24-7 for that as well. As we talk about International Overdose Awareness Day and stigma is such a big part of that in overcoming stigma. We talked about this last time when you all were on the program. That plays a part as well. But I understand your organization is gearing up for another event, National Recovery Month. That's right. September is National Recovery Month. We have uh, 24 events that we're sponsoring with, along with the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities going to be a mix of virtual and in-person meetings there's a car rally again you can find all of this information on our website but this is statewide uh celebration of recovery and, and it's by people in recovery for people in recovery and our allies when it comes to stigma that's still a major still a major concern a challenge for folks for some folks and even telling people or even reaching out for help to begin with And, you know, at the Georgia Council, we believe in speaking our recovery out loud because then the world gets the opportunity to see that, yes, there are challenges with substance use disorder, but through connection and through using resources, we do recover and we get better and we make a positive difference in the world. And that's why it's so important that we do speak our recovery out loud. And that's one of the beginnings of understanding that um, we can get better, and it's okay to say that I have it, because if you don't admit you have it, then you're not going to look for the resources to get better. And Neil... Or the connection. Oh, thank you, Beverly. And Neil, language is so important as well, because you you told us last time, you said, you know, recovery. I'm always going to be recovering. It's not the destination, it's the journey. That's right. It is the journey. And I think those of us who are in recovery 
are uniquely qualified to live through this pandemic because we do it one day at a time. I read an article yesterday by a woman who got better by going to 12-step meetings. And she said, you know, I, I know what it's like to live one day at a time. I can't live in the future. Like, we don't know what this pandemic is going to give us. But today we know if we can get through the day without drinking or using drugs, then it's going to be, today is going to be okay. So we always say just for today. So I think a lot of us have that that resiliency or that practice of living one day at a time. And as we talk about our recovery, so others know it's possible. I think that's just a huge gift. It's like, for example, Beverly is a veteran. And so we have veterans calling up and she, she knows specifically what it's like to, to be in a, to be a vet and to also be someone who's in recovery. And so we just have a lot of lived experience that we can share. So I think as, you know, a lot of times the general public thinks of, people who have a substance use disorder and they think of all of the problems associated with it, we're just trying to turn that on its head and say, hey, we're in recovery and we can help with this. As we wrap up, I want to offer you all an opportunity to reflect on this day, International Overdose Awareness Day, and just your own personal, through your own personal lens, you know, what this day means. And I'll start with you, Beverly. Well, this day is an opportunity to understand is that through connection, then our peers don't have to overdose. And then also to understand that there are other options out there for care and for treatment and for having peer connection. And often our recovery coaches talk about the time that they overdosed and they survived and the path that helped them to get to wellness. And that's so important to understand. Mm. Neil? Yeah, you started, uh, Rose, by reading a memo by uh, Director of Public Health, Dr. Toomey, and one of the things she said is that we have an epidemic within this pandemic, and we still have the epidemic of overdose, and we can't forget that. We are losing people every day to this disorder, and something has to be done. So to bring awareness, to say how sorry we are for the loved ones we lost, many in the prime of their lives, to we got to do something about it. We need more services. We need to be out loud about this. We need to stay connected with each other. Mm. Neil Campbell, the executive director of the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse, and Beverly Ragland, manager of the CARES Warm Line. By the way, Beverly, thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the services you are offering to Georgians everywhere. Thanks for giving us a voice, Rose. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We continue now with special programming on this day. It is International Overdose Awareness Day, and it's a global campaign held on August 31st every year. Now, the goal is to raise awareness of overdoses and reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths. And all the conversations on this special edition of Closer Look will focus on everything from policy to legislation to advocacy and, of course, treatment and funding. 
So now we turn our focus to the nation's rural communities and a recent block of funding to combat the opioid crisis here in Georgia. And joining me now is Tom Morris. He serves as the Associate Administrator for Rural Health Policy in the Health Resources and Services Administration. And that's all within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mr. Morris, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You know, earlier in today's program, we heard accounts of the dangers and relapse and rising overdoses during the pandemic alone. What do you make of that? Well, it's been a real challenge. I, you know, we've been uh, working in this area for you know several years now, and so we had just begun to really, uh, I think, uh, make a real impact. And this is you know across our agency, whether it was the work we're doing with the community health centers to expand access to treatment, or or supporting providers through loan repayment, and then the the work we have in our office that focuses on rural communities. And you know, these are tough issues, and and. and real challenges for many communities. And then you add a pandemic on top of that, and it just really makes it difficult. One of the things we've been doing ever since uh, the pandemic hit is to really get a sense from our grantees of, of what's going on. And what I've been amazed at is while they've all acknowledged that keeping people in treatment and getting people referred to services is exponentially more difficult when you're in this sort of situation, um, it has also spurred a, a tremendous amount of creativity on their part. And so I'm encouraged by that, um, but it doesn't lessen uh, you know, the, the arduous path they have in front of us because a lot of these services heretofore were, were done face-to-face. And um, so now to have to do a lot of that virtually and to form the coalitions that really, I think are essential, so much of that is relationship building. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say you can't do that in a virtual sense, but it does make it a little more challenging. And folks should know, it's been reported that the drug overdose death rate in the rural communities is actually higher than in the urban areas. And that's been happening since 2006. That's 14 years ago. Why do you think it has taken so long? This has been a problem for some time. Yeah, you know, that you're exactly right. And, and And the data has been pretty stark. And, you know, prior to the opioid epidemic, it was a variety of substances. Some, a lot of times it was alcohol in rural communities, but you know the whole country went through a very serious problem with meth, which is resurfacing. And then there's always been you know other pockets of heroin abuse and you know you name it. There's uh, CDC last year put out a very interesting study that looked at rural and uh, urban communities and by by state and region, and it found that it really varied by region. You know there was no there's, there was no consistent pattern, and and even as the opioid epidemic hit, even as we made these investments in rural communities, we had many of our stakeholders tell me, while we're dealing with this now, it's layered on top of other substance use issues. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it is not a new thing in, in, in that sense, but it has been more stark and, and, and brought in you know, more direct relief during the opioid epidemic. I, you know, I, what are the drivers? I, I, you know, there are probably a variety of them. I think in, in some cases there's underlying mental illness and people are self-medicating. And mm-hmm. in other cases, there's, there's issues of despair, I think, in some communities. And, and that can be a, a driver. And sometimes they're, they're, you know, they're related to the criminal justice system. So it's been around for a while and yet you know, we've we've struggled to come to grips with it. I've been very, you know, pleased that when they when policymakers started thinking about how they were going to respond to the opioid epidemic, they realized that it played out a little bit differently in rural communities mm-hmm. where you have less infrastructure, uh, it's more geographic isolation, distance to care, and um, so you know when they created our program, the Rural Community Opioids Response, uh, there was, I think, an acknowledgement that while there was a lot of funding going out to states and and urban areas, um, we probably 
definitely needed a, a targeted focus on rural communities. Well, you know, even right here in Georgia, there were reports revealed that the total number of opioid-related overdose deaths increased, and listen to this number, increased by 245 percent from 2010 to 2017. A listener will hear this and say, wow, think that perhaps there could have been some deaths that might have been prevented during this time because of there just wasn't enough resources. Now, we can't say that's 100 percent accurate, but it makes one wonder, you know, if these rural populations, these rural communities had greater resources and access for folks to get treatment that we might have been able to prevent some deaths. What do you make of that? Oh, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that, um, you know, the the, the typical story when we talk about rural communities, uh, just in terms of healthcare in general, is, uh, you know, limited access to care, not enough providers. And that's just talking, you know, in the broad primary care setting. Those challenges are even more profound when you move into the mental health and and substance use and and behavioral health aspect of of healthcare delivery. And so, um, yeah, if if there were any communities that were ill-equipped for an an epidemic of, of like this, it was rural communities. And so, you know, that's the challenge we had in front of us. The positive aspect of that is that there has been a response. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, for instance, the, the community health centers that our agency supports, you know, there's probably more than 10,000 uh, access points, probably close mm-hmm. to 11,000. And, you know, f- more than 40% of those are in rural communities. And so that's been an important part. And they started expanding behavioral health services and community health centers even prior to the epidemic, but then it ramped up considerably. So slowly, I think that infrastructure is getting built and, and, and it's reaching out into rural communities. And I think, you know, Georgia is a good example of that. There's uh, the, the community health centers are a you know, a strong part of the healthcare infrastructure, both in rural and urban communities. But yeah, if we had more prevention services, we had more access to care. I don't think there's any doubt that, that, that some of those deaths could have been prevented. You mentioned the community health centers and you talked about barriers to treatment just a moment ago. But when you think about the plight of rural hospitals and those clinics, these community centers are going to be so important because we keep hearing and seeing, although there have been some efforts even here in Georgia through our General Assembly to help rural hospitals they're still closing, Mr. Morris. So these community centers are going to be they crucial. Sure every every community is is unique in a rural community. You know, in rural America, um, sometimes you have enough population to support a hospital. Sometimes you do not. There's also challenges in terms of uh, areas that have a high rate of uninsured or or take care of a higher percentage, perhaps, of Medicare Medicaid patients. And so all those factors play into you know the viability of rural hospitals. And so yeah, the community health centers have been a real lifeline in that regard because they are. The one place, you know, where you, we talk about integrated care a lot, and the one place you really see it is within community health centers. You know, one of the things I think we tried to do with our grants uh, was really provide the flexibility through these implementation grants. The four in Georgia are a good example, mm-hmm. is to really give the communities the flexibility to design their own approach to it. And so some of them have community health centers involved, some of them have hospitals. The four projects are all talking about integrating services locally. And, and the one thing that I, as I look through them, they all have a criminal justice aspect to it. And I think mm-hmm. that's really important. I think the the funding streams really have to be adaptable to what the need is in that community and then allow us to be less siloed in our care delivery and more integrative. Well, in that $4 million block that went to the four entities here 
in Georgia. Will this be a funding that they can reapply for? Honestly, and this may not be a fair question to you, but when you think about it, a million dollars for each one, is that even enough? I mean, every little yeah, bit helps. Fair question. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, fair question. The way that we've approached these programs is that we're making an initial investment in these communities to bring together stakeholders, to create consortiums, networks, um, with the idea being that they would use the time while we're funding them to, to see if there's ways to build a more sustainable approach. So we don't see this as a continuing program, mm-hmm. but rather a way to, to integrate locally. And so, for instance, we really encourage them and provide a tremendous amount of technical assistance to make sure that as they, as they get clients entering into the system, are they eligible for Medicaid? Do they have private insurance? Are the providers billing for all those services? Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, the Justice Department and, and state and local governments often have money for treatment. Are we thinking about that as a sustainability strategy, particularly with drug courts and things like that. I'm not saying that it's easy to sustain these programs, mm-hmm. uh, but I am uh, I, I'm a firm believer that if you bring together multiple folks from across the, the, the spectrum um, and you can show value during that project period, uh, the hope is that through a combination of third party billing and local support, um, they can keep it going. Well, let me ask you this, Mr. Morris. What's your assessment tools in terms of determining the effectiveness of what you all have been able to do, just even providing funding for these four recipients. Well, we're still in the early stages of that. We have mm-hmm. a you know, broad range of performance metrics that we're going to look at, including number of people into treatment, uh, number of people completing different phases of treatment, number of people finishing treatment altogether and staying uh, sober. Uh, so those will be measures we look at. We'll also go back and um, look and see how many of those coalitions stayed together after the uh, uh, project, after our funding ended. Um, But, you know, we're still so early in it that we don't have any of that data yet. But uh, we base this on another community-based program we've had for probably about 25 years now. And um, those grants are much smaller. But but we have found with those, uh, you know, that, that, that well more than 75% of the coalitions we fund continue in one way, shape, or form. So in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we think of this as, as, as sort of venture capital for good ideas in rural communities. We give them the flexibility. And then the, the one thing we try to really work with them is what, what can keep this going from your perspective? When we talk about rural health policy or just health policy in general, you and I both know that it's not perfect in this nation. When it comes to policy, Mr. Morris, what do you feel through your lens still need to be addressed as relates to not just opioids, but just substance abuse in general and particularly for the rural community? Is there still an area you all need to greatly improve if you can in terms of what you all can do? Well, I think integration is the key. I mean, the, the, the one thing we know about rural communities is the infrastructure is so limited. So we really can't be siloed in any of our care. And you know, so what can we do to make sure that to the extent that, say, a primary care provider, a doc, a nurse practitioner, a PA, that they are able to offer medication-assisted treatment. So um, you know, they can use our grant dollars to get that certification from the DEA so they can provide those services. What sort of best practices are out there? I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, we've had a significant investment through this program, and when we've we're able to bring our grantees together face to face. We had our most recent meeting, I think, just before the pandemic hit. The 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 learning that goes on between them and the sharing of strategies has really been been quite impressive. And so, how do we package that up and make sure that other communities can benefit from it? You know, picking up some of those strategies. You know, the other part is workforce. Um, all the best intentions of the world are not going to matter if there's not a 
clinical person there, whether it's a substance abuse counselor or a physician, you know, you name it. Um, and so one of the one of the, the really appealing aspects from our perspective has been with our funding is not just are we putting money in these communities to build these coalitions, but then through our Bureau of Health Workforce and the National Service Board, they have loan repayment money. And so we've really made an effort to have our grantees to have their providers tap into the loan repayment because a lot of these providers are still paying off the, the money that they had to spend to get trained. But then it also can be a recruitment tool. Like mm -hmm. if you're looking for a substance use counselor and, and they have some loans to repay and you can qualify them for loan repayment, um, we want them to do that. And so we're still working through all that and helping sites get qualified, but we do have some resources there uh, to move, you know, to, to bring to bear, so to speak. And finally, at the time of this broadcast, as we focus on International Overdose Awareness Day, from stigma to raising awareness, just what is your personal philosophy about this nation being able to significantly reduce those drug-related deaths as it relates to opioid use? How can we get there? Yeah, I think the, the, the issue you just raised, stigma, is incredibly important. You know, who, who among us has not been touched by this crisis, if not directly in our own families, then more broadly, people we know who are affected? So in so much of that, you know, realizing that it's an illness, you know, and not a, not a, not some sort of failing on a personal level, and then treating it like any other healthcare condition, and then making sure we have the support services there. It's always going to be a challenge in rural communities, but that doesn't mean you, you know, you, you give up. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to continue to invest in these communities and then do what we can to bring attention to those issues moving forward. Tom Morris, he's the Associate Administrator for Rural Health Policy in the Health Resources and Services Administration, and that is within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mr. Morris, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being a part of today's conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you for what you all are doing to help folks, too. You bet. You're welcome. Thank you for the time. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Today's edition of Closer Look has been all about a recent rise in overdose deaths in this country and here locally. We've already spoken to advocates and policymakers about how the pandemic has amplified this problem and how the resources available to help those who need it. Prior to the opioid epidemic, it was a variety of substances. Some, a lot of times it was alcohol in rural communities. The whole country went through a very serious problem with meth, which is resurfacing. And then there's always been, you know, other pockets of heroin abuse. The alcohol sales are at a record high. We're seeing the, the revenue from, from alcohol going up and up. So that it's no surprise that there's more and more people who are needing services and needing help or needing connection. People are isolated, and so they do things at home to give them comfort, and they're afraid. And so oftentimes that's when people turn to substance use disorder and they have challenges with mental illness. So as we continue talking about substance abuse and overdoses, joining me now to conclude today's program is the leader of a community wellness organization. We've done many profiles of this organization, the Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. Their mission to reduce the impact of substance abuse, particularly in a, quote, vulnerable community. And Dr. Mojan Zare is the organization's executive director, and she joins me now. Dr. Zare, thanks for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. Good to have you on the program again. Thank you for having me on. Today is International Overdose Awareness Day, and the goal on today's program, not only as we talk about awareness and also reducing the stigma, which is also the goal of International Overdose Awareness Day, but also what comes along with this. And I just like to get your reflections on this day 
and bring more awareness to overdoses and substance abuse. So overdose in this country and probably around the world is a huge problem, which is why it's an international day. You know, drug use has been an issue that's been ongoing for for as long as probably people know. And um, it's not going anywhere, if anything. And looking at trends, at least in the United States, it's getting worse. It's changing from one population to other. I think um, more attention is now probably being paid to it because populations have changed. Um, and, you know, we've been going through this this war on drugs that's just not responding, you know, and overdoses are partially, in my opinion, are the reason behind or at least increased overdoses are, are behind this policy. That's just not effective. Um, I'm just glad that I keep seeing, you know, more funding now coming and more attention is being paid to overdose prevention. And I hope that we can set policies, effective policies in this country that will help people not lose their loved ones to this drug, uh, to this drug issue. And right now, as we've been talking with guests in the first two segments, and we talked about now there's a pandemic and now we hear there's an increase in some overdoses. What do you make of that? I mean, I think it's it's something that, you know, has definitely kept me up at night throughout the past few months. It's something that uh, it's inevitable. Some of the teachings is, you know, don't use alone and use with someone else. Social distancing has definitely put an effect, which, again, you know, unfortunately, the mishandling of the COVID pandemic in this country is kind of a side effect or has led as one of the root cause to this issue. Um and then on the other side, you know, fentanyl is just a huge, huge, huge issue. And if, you know, people are not having access to drugs, um, they are just buying from anyone. And given the pandemic and lack of accessibility, I think fentanyl, you know, has, has increased, you know, in this country. And because of that, overdoses um, definitely has spiked. I think we talked for a minute about Atlanta harm reduction hosting a sudden harm reduction conference. And it was, so the conference was supposed to be held back in March and mm -hmm. then it got moved into August because of COVID-19, you know, um, and social distancing. And it was so sad just as an, you know, example of it is one of the presenters who was supposed to present back in March by the time August rolled, he had died because of an overdose because he was using alone at home with no access to anyone, you know, reviving him. And, and this is just so sad. This is this it just, you know, it, it really, really hurts for family members who are now, you know, just going through this rough time of of hurting for, for children and family members who are past. And Dr. Zare, I'm so sorry to hear that. Earlier in the program, we spoke with a substance abuse advocacy organization. And for Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition, you all specialize in these areas that you label as vulnerable communities. Tell us just a little bit more about that. Yes. So we work with many different um, populations, um, including people who inject drugs, people who use drugs, people who are living with HIV, AIDS, people who are living with hepatitis C, sex workers, homeless population, 
people who are living in you know poverty and they are all vulnerable communities in that they're vulnerable for overdoses they're vulnerable for acquiring hiv aids they're vulnerable for acquiring hepatitis c or becoming homeless or domestic violence and the goal is the vision of the organization like it says in the website is that everyone will have equal access to healthcare and just living a life we are all deserving of living a productive healthy lives and unfortunately when it comes to our vulnerable community majority of the time because of stigma and then of course since we live in the south the stigma is much much more folks don't have access to those if they are part of those communities that i just mentioned well let me ask you this have you all seen an increase Absolutely. There's been an increase, a tremendous increase when it comes to our harm reduction services. And that is because of a couple of reasons that I'll mention them. So we are the only surge services program in the state and a comprehensive surge services program in the state, um, I, I must say. And the number of folks who are coming to our syringe services program to acquire things such as Narcan, which prevents an overdose. Mm -hmm. And th this is not just the participant, meaning this may not be just the person who's using drugs. This may be a mother of a person who's using drugs. This may be a wife of a person who's using drugs, and they're just worried about their loved ones. It has increased tremendously. And a part of it is because when COVID-19 happened, and again, because of the mismanagement of COVID-19 by leadership, a lot of certain services program, because of um, protection of their staff as well as their clients, they had to either stop their services or they shut down. And then when you think about Georgia, when the law just passed last year after over uh, close to 30 years, for certain services become legal and regulations went to effect six days ago you know so for a whole year even though the law was there no regulations was set up there are no access and so people this 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 organization our organization was the only access they had to services and they're coming and they're telling us stories about number of overdoses that they have observed um last year alone in 2019 our program, which is definitely under, you know, the numbers are underrated because not everyone calls us to tell us they reverse an overdose. We were able to save 950 lives the year before it over a thousand. And, you know, once the numbers are added up for 2020, and as we're looking at the numbers right now, there's just even a bigger hit this year than it was last year. And so COVID definitely had an effect, you know, a, a part to play in this. Speaking of this pandemic, how has it affected what you all typically do? You're used to that face-to-face -face contact, counseling. Yep, it's definitely been challenging. But, you know, one thing, at least with harm reduction organizations, is that every time there's a step back, you know, we become creative and we try to push it back at least to the same line that we were, if not more forward. So we had to come up with some creative ideas. We've offered telehealth, we've offered, you know, for our clinic, um, we've offered telecounseling for our counseling center. We were closed for about six weeks where we offered these just over the phone and virtual. And, you know, when it comes to our vulnerable communities, telehealth and, and telecounseling are not things that are really going to be as effective um, or unfortunately as accessible, I should say, 
Um, so when we've opened back up, we've come up with very creative ways, you know, protecting our staff, uh, making sure that all supplies and equipments they need, as well as the clients, if they requested, are available, making shifts, you know, um, for staggered shifts for staff, and make sure that all the programs pretty much that we offered, you know, are still available. So we are still seeing clients and patients face to face. None of our services have stopped. If anything, we've expanded on services than before. And then we specifically put a program or a response for COVID-19 mm-hmm. by um, providing resources to the community outside of what we were offering that they would really need. You know, we've talked about legislation in the past and Georgia has made some significant signing of bills into law here over the last few years. From your viewpoint in terms of legislation, what else needs to happen here in Georgia? Well, for one thing, the Surge Services Program Bill, the Harm Reduction Bill 217 that was passed, which was a huge success, I think, in the state of Georgia, mm-hmm. was a great victory. But then regulations are now put by Georgia Department of Public Health, and it's, it's a huge setback. It is definitely not helpful when it comes to implementation of the program across the state, the stipulations that are within the program. And I'll just provide two examples of it. 1,000 feet distancing to any schools, which which right away, pretty much if you're in the inner city, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just schools, I believe it's, it's other places such as maybe certain daycares or whatever too. It really makes it hard for inner city exchanges to happen. And then mandatory background checks for the program staff, which that that means that I am assuming unless you are an educated suburban person who's never had to deal with any type of issues, you know, you are going to be kind of banned from being a staff in the program. And, and, you know, Georgia Department of Public Health says, no, that's not how really it is, but this is how it's written. You know, if you have a felony, you won't be able to be a part of it. And so typically harm reduction um surge services programs are led by people who use drugs and people who inject drugs and that pretty much is gonna probably exclude a lot of that you're saying there are extra barriers that are involved when it comes to the syringe service program that maybe legislators didn't even think about i don't really know if it's um so that when the legislations went through the only stipulations it had that it would be regulated by georgia department of public health and i don't know if i want to say that at the time that this this you know when when the bill was written there was this assumption that the regulations will be this this strict Mm -hmm. and mind you not and so as part of the policy though mind you not there is no funding available so although the bill is passed, although regulations are set, there's no funding associated with it, nor have I heard anything about technical assistance. This is a program. If you're going to set it up in other parts of Georgia, as it should be, because there is no way one organization is able to serve 10 million people in Georgia one way or the other with its services program. Dr. Zarin, uh, how many folks do you all serve on an annual basis? We serve over 20,000 people. And, and, if, and I want everyone to think about it in this context that we are in Atlanta. So if you, and we have folks coming all the way from Savannah, all the way from Northern Georgia, and even all the way from Chattanooga, Tennessee to our certain services program. But I also want you to put it in this context that not everybody is gonna have that transportation availability to come to us. So this 20,000 individual, it's, it would be much more if we had multiple certain services program across 
across the country. You told me earlier the southeastern portion of the United States has a higher percentage of those who might be in need of these services. What do you make of that? It is a Bible belt. I, it's, um, it is conservative area. Um, and it's, you know, just like the director of the HIV uh, section from Georgia Department of Public Health, you know, indicates that it has multiple counties, over 140 counties, and it's really two Georgias. It's the Atlanta, Georgia, which is about, I think, 20 some counties is what they look at it, and the rest of Georgia. And it's very, very different. Um, laws here are very restrictive unfortunately when i go out to the capital and i lobby and advocate and there i am standing with a, a medical provider you know a dentist and and you know um or or people in policy and you would think that at this day and age we're at a level where you know, certain things are just scientifically proven and you still have to continue having conversations about importance of these things, these services. Then you realize that this is a whole different place that we're in. That, And I'm from Maryland. And it's very, very different mm -hmm. than in the north or in the West Coast area. And finally, doctor, if someone listening knows someone that needs your services or someone out there who might not even be aware that there's a service like y'all's available. What is your message on this day to folks out there who are struggling with substance abuse disorder? My message to everyone who are using substances is first and foremost to know that you are a human being and you deserve the same amount of dignity, compassion, and, and receiving services just like anyone else. Um, there is no way, there's no reason for anyone to treat you any differently. We do live in a world where stigma is huge and not just within the substance use community, with many different communities, but only together we can break this stigma. Your voices need to be heard. Please reach out to us. We have many services. We never turn anyone away. And we're known for working with you with the treatment plan you choose to go forward with. So please reach out to us whether you are using substances or whether you are a family member of someone who uses substances and let's work together to ensure the safety of all georgians not just you know people who don't use drugs mm -hmm. dr mojan zare executive director of the atlanta harm reduction coalition thank you so much for taking the time and being part of today's very special program i really appreciate it thank you for having me and as we end today's special program, the music you hear was composed by 29-year-old Kendall, who passed away this summer. Closer Look is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look and available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.